But what about the kids that don't want to be doctors? And then I started to think about why, why do kids care about grades at all? And then I thought about what if there was a credential that a teacher could award a student for their work? It, it could potentially give the learner an intrinsic desire to achieve and give them a, a credentialed skill that they leave with rather than a C. What the heck does that mean, Don? Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast, a member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, we have on Jeremy Williams. As I'll get to that introduction, he is a head of school in the UAE, close to Dubai. But what I like about Jeremy is I've known him for quite some time, and we have been mulling around this idea of working on a blockchain to help empower students um, and and like kind of change the way we look at education in the fields of uh, micro-credentialing. So uh, for these reasons, I want you to, if you're a blockchain enthusiast, please give this a listen. Uh, if you want to help join us in our initiative, man, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, Jeremy gives all of his contact information at the end. If you are an educator who is intrigued by this, I recommend you reach out to Jeremy. He can really explain blockchain in a way that is a way that I can understand it and in, in a sense of fallen in love and have kind of worked on some new projects. Also, we get into um, the fact that we're building something out with a couple of my students, uh, both here in the United States and with Jeremy's uh, as well there in the UAE. So I think it's an exciting, exciting time to be in this blockchain genre, as it were, and then also just, you know, start working on some solutions that we find interesting in education. Anyway, we're going to get into these things on the show. I hope you enjoy it. Whether you are a fan of blockchain or just education reform, I know you're going to love this. The reason why we can find great people like this is that you're making recommendations to us on the show, and also we're growing by leaps and bounds because when you share this show, it is everything to us. We sincerely appreciate when you guys share this on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, it has been able to reach more people for sure. And uh, we are now solidly, consistently in at least 80 different countries at this point per episode. So that doesn't happen without you guys sharing it from the bottom of my heart. Sincerely, I appreciate it. Okay, I've gone on long enough. I am excited about this one. Get some notes out. I think you're going to really thoroughly enjoy this in the explanation of blockchain. Jeremy Williams. All right. Now I am pleased to be joined by Jeremy Williams. Jeremy is the head of school at Manor Hall International School there in the UAE. Actually, Jeremy, you're just down the street there in Dubai, correct? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like you're technically, there. are you in a suburb of Dubai? I was. Yeah. So I'm in a city called Alain, which is located against the border of the Sultanate of Oman in the UAE. And it basically my city and Abu Dhabi and Dubai form this like equilateral triangle of major cities that are one hour apart. So uh, I don't know if that helps explain it. That's there you go. All right. Well, cause I was saying like you're from Dubai and every now and then I see, you know, things you've written and you're not technically but real close. Okay. Well, full disclosure, I have known Jeremy for a while now, at least a year plus. And it was funny cause I was talking about, you know, things up coming on the podcast. And all of a sudden I go, wait, I've had you on the podcast, right? Am I dreaming? And then you're like, no. And so I was like, okay, we need to rectify that because we've been bouncing ideas off each other now for, for a while. Um, and matter of fact, let's, let's start from that origin. Um, we got to know one another and we've just kind of been talking about some educational trends. So tell me a little bit about being an American in an international school there in the UAE. 
Yeah, I think like another important part of our origin story is the fact that we're both Hoosiers. So I'm originally from the Northwest, the region, as they would say, in Indiana, um, which ironically, when people would ask where I was from, I would say Chicago. So it's the same thing with the Dubai you, thing. You know, I'm, I was going to say, wow, you're admitting you're from Indiana because you, <laughs> so many people I know that are in the region, the region, they're always like, oh, I'm from Chicago. I'm like, no, you're not from Indiana. So thank you for saying you're a Hoosier. <laughs> of course. Um, so yeah, I, I had um, really f- kind of flown up the the corporate ladder at school, I guess. I was a teacher in Merrillville, and then I became a vice principal at the age of 28. And then uh, next thing I knew, I was a high school principal. And then I had moved, and I was actually in Indianapolis at that point. I had moved uh, back home to the region and uh, I was I was coming on as kind of like a curriculum regional director of curriculum and instruction for a charter school network in in Northwest Indiana, and then uh, that turned into the superintendency. So I was very young, and in this position where I was learning so much at such a rapid pace, I had really great bosses and people I was learning from, and I was happy with what I was doing. Um, but one day when I was at home. Uh, my wife said something to me like uh, she was like folding laundry. She said something to me like, oh, have you ever thought about like living in, in another country or a place like Dubai? And then for some reason when she said that to me and she has a different take of the story, but this is how I remember it. I was like, yeah, why don't I get a job in Dubai? And that was kind of it. And the next thing I knew I had accepted a job out here and it was a school that needed some some TLC, which had kind of been my MO. I, I've kind of been in schools that were needing um, turnaround or massive support. And so it was the right opportunity for me to get into international schools because international schools are known for being a, a bit frat-ish, a bit fraternity-like. Um, so it was a good opportunity for me. And uh, yeah, I've been here now going on three years at Manor Hall. So tell me about a little bit of the similarities and the differences being in the UAE. Um, from a school perspective, it feels just like being in America, to be honest. With the, the one difference of, you know, I mandate, by law, I have to teach Arabic to every child in the school, including my own, which is fascinating to watch my kindergartner um, speak Arabic to me. Um, and so there's things like that, but the bigger picture of what's extremely unique is that they do not have the standardized testing system in the UAE that the American education system is kind of wedded to. So their whole approach is more of like the British Ofsted system, which for the Americans, which I'm guessing there's mostly Americans that consist of your audience is like, they come do like a five day inspection of your school and they like talk to your kids, they talk to your parents, they uh, talk to your teachers, and they basically, like, they get into every part of your school. And I don't say that in an, in an intrusive way, but they really get to do a pretty good, thorough inspection of, like, what's really happening, right? Because you can fake something for a day, maybe two, but for five straight days, anything that you're trying to do, um, the, the authenticity will come through. And so like they look at things like innovation skills. They look at things like, um, uh, you know, normal things that you would expect like uh, health and safety and care of students. 
but then they look at like they they assess leadership what's the capacity of the leadership in the school to improve the school uh so I would say that like there is no national federal assessment that they give. And because of that, you really need to run a good school. And by good school, I mean a school where people know what the vision statement is. People can articulate it. Kids yeah. are in agreement with it. So it's a different model. And I prefer it much to what I was dealing with in America. For sure. Well, no, I, I like hearing that because um, if you're not, I, I like the way you put it, that wedded, to the, um, the testing culture that opens yourself up to a lot more other at minimum experiences. And so I, I like hearing that, but what are like, in your opinion, what are some of the better, um, how should I say it's like some, some of the better outcomes because of that? Like, what are some things you've seen? I wouldn't say that are distinctly a UAE, but ha- have more of a stamp on it that we, you'll find different from, let's just say, a school uh, like in the Midwest, uh, like a public school in the Midwest. Yeah, it it's really interesting. Um, one thing that I would say is that you have a national government, you have the the Ministry of Education saying, how are you going to promote innovation in your school? Like, how are you doing it? You must do it. And how are you doing it? So that isn't really hemmed in, like, you must do, you must code, or you must, uh, you know, use virtual reality as much as possible. Like, it's not, it's not guided, like, in that way. It's not directed in that way. But it's, Hmm. it's, they expect that you are going to, they, they have a, the government has a very progressive vision for the country. There's a post I'm going to throw on LinkedIn tonight that is me at a Christmas celebration in, in, in the Middle East, which I think like most Americans would go like, what? What do you mean? Like you can celebrate Christmas there? So the, the, it's extremely progressive country and they want to be the best and the first at everything. They, they want to have the biggest building in the world. And, you know, that, that sort of ambition, they have drone taxi cabs, Don. They have drone taxi cabs. I mean, we're talking about a, but if you think about that, right, here's the way I would explain the UAE. And if you could like then kind of take this comparison and then put it to education, they have the biggest building in the world called the Burj Khalifa. It's a marvel. Saudi Arabia is building a, a, a structure called the Jeddah Tower that will be like 50 feet taller than it. As soon as that was announced, they began breaking ground on a building that was taller than the Jeddah Tower. So they are extremely committed at winning and their approach in education is similar. They want to do well in PISA and TIMS, which I think is a smarter aiming point. If you are going to look at like some sort of external data, like I think looking at international comparison makes a lot more sense to me than some moving target state to state or country to country. So how you said they, you didn't use the word mandate, but they, they like wanted to pursue innovation. How do they, I don't, I hate to use the word, how do they enforce that? But what's the follow through? What's the, um, okay, we, we see it now kind of rubric or, or whatever. Yeah. So that's an important thing I need to mention. If you are in, a citizen of the United Arab Emirates, not a resident, a citizen, you're an Emirati, you may attend the public schools. If you are any other citizenship, 
you have to attend the private schools. So what that means Interesting. is something that people don't understand is that 85% of the UAE are expatriates, meaning they're people from somewhere else that are working there, right? So the local population is very small. So there is significant competition in the private school sector for kids, right? And your rating uh, out of these six different performance standards determines whether the owner can increase a fee hike uh, so if it, so the owner can't increase fees, the owner can't increase enrollment if they don't have a certain level of performance. And this level of performance, again, is not based off one test. It's a comprehensive. Uh, and so innovation skills is part of that language. Um, and so if your school is not demonstrating evidence of that, it's not evident in lesson observations, not evident in talking to students, you're going to get marked down for that. And while there are six different performance standards, the only ones that really make up your rating are teaching and learning and curriculum. So, you, you know, it, a lot of it is tied into the instructional performance of the school. So I think like basically the owner obviously wants their school rating to be good because then they can increase fees. However, if you don't, if you're not complying with these, um, with these factors, you're not going to be able to increase your fees or enrollment and the owner is not going to accept that. So like, even if the owner isn't altruistically motivated for the school to quote unquote improve, they have a financial impetus to do so. Yeah. No, that's an interesting model of, of both compliance and incentives. That, and uh, so here, here's yeah. one more thing to think about, Don. On top of it, then they say, they, they change year to year and go, we're creating what we call limiting judgments, which are factors that you must perform at a certain level in or your school cannot be good. And so the, the, and good is one of the, it's, it's one of the higher ratings. Good, very good, and outstanding are the three highest. So if your Arabic instruction right now, this is one of them, if your Arabic instruction is acceptable and is not good, your entire school cannot be rated good. So they can move the accountability in a, in a more dynamic way against national priorities and national agenda to say, we really want innovation skills to happen. This is a limiting judgment. So you better, if you want your school to be rated uh, highly, you must do these things and people move. One of the things that we've been kind of geeking out on and that I kind of want to talk about is that um, it's funny and I'm going to have him on the podcast uh, next Friday. Brady um, has been one of my students, Brady Anderson, has been really passionate about uh, the future of blockchain. And he's been enjoying like teaching me some things. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Jeremy Williams has been bending my ear and wanting to talk to me about this forever. And that, that was kind of the, the jumping off point of like, let's start having conversations together. You did a really good job of dumbing it down for me. Um, and so I could get my, my mind around it. Tell people a little bit about blockchain, but then also then kind of venture into what it could mean for education. Yeah. Um, so let me say this. The, the worst thing that I think happened to blockchain was the tying it and then the interchangeable use of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And so I don't even want to talk about cryptocurrencies. When we're talking about blockchain, we're really talking about a ledger 
that is secure and distributed. And, and what that means to the like layman of layman's is like if you imagine your bank account with Chase, all of that data is centrally housed in one location, right? So any breach to that data and your entire system is compromised because it lives again in one location. The Equifax data breach that happened impacted people, the data warehouse was breached, and then all of that information, those taxpayer identification numbers, social security numbers, they're all just kind of spilled out everywhere, right? There was no, it was hard to contain. So what, what a, a, the difference between that sort of traditional data management ledger system and a blockchain system is that every individual user on the network contains the transactions and the ledger for every other user. So basically, instead of one central location, every user is an independent record of every transaction that's ever, ever happened. So for you to, quote unquote, hack or break into that system, you would have to hit a tipping point of 51% of all of the different users. So if you think about a bank that has 10 million users, it means you have to hit 5 million in one of them. You'd have to get them all cracked to, to infiltrate that system. So it has a massive security a kind of component to it. And then the other part is like, really the technology exists to sort of um, wipe out the intermediary of, of the gap trust, the trust gap, I should say, uh, between two parties, right? So um, there, there's plenty of examples of how we suffer from a, a lack of trust, right? When you make a purchase at a store, you'll notice that when you use your debit card, depending on what, if you do credit or if you do debit, the payment doesn't come, right? It's pending. So there's like this back-end verification of funds and with between the merchant and then the purchaser before that thing processes. So I think when you th when you introduce blockchain, these things are verifiable instantly. And the, because that trust gap is kind of diminished or removed, it means that you you see all these different intermediaries across different industries that are in real trouble. And, and I think to your point around how that looks in education. I think, you know, I can take a small example. When I hire someone as a principal and I look at their credentials, what level of trust should I take from a CV on or a resume? We call them CVs yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what's the trust that I should have in what this person says they've done or accomplished, right? If you have a way to credential through blockchain in a verifiable and unhackable way, like now, you know, I, I know for sure that this person made this accomplishment or presented at this conference or, you know, ran the Boston Marathon. That's what they said they did. Like I, you, you, you create ways to authenticate and credential all these different things. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity for education. When you first explained to me like that, that visual of you'd have to hack 51% of uh, a group or whatever, like kind of made sense to me. And, and, I kind of got my, my mind around it because I, like a lot of other people, use the terms cryptocurrency and blockchain interchangeably. And since we've had these talks, I now have met more people in the crypto community that they all admit, like, like the, and not really that crypto was the bane of their uh, existence. It was the speculation and wild swings and over, over exuberation about uh, cryptocurrency and people wanting to make a quick buck. Um, but we then started to, and I just always remember, uh, this was a really key pivotal moment for me when I was asking you a bunch of what I'll admit were really 
questions born out of naivete. But I started asking you, okay, then, you know, where is blockchain going? You know, it seems like all these things are in fintech. And I was like, what does this have to do with education? And so I'll have that out loud conversation now. And we can talk about what we're starting to work on. But what what do you see blockchain and education? How How would they merge? Okay, that's a good point. So we talked about this idea when we're conceptualizing blockchain of like an intermediary. So in financial services, Visa, the processing people are the intermediary. Or if we look at smart contracts, lawyers are the intermediary. Or in elections, governments are the intermediary. So like what is the intermediary that we're talking about if in a, in a blockchain application for education? And to me, it's universities. Right now, they are the intermediary between the K-12 and the career, right? Yeah. And so if I am a student and I'm going to a university and I want to study graphic design, I'm going to take geology, Don. Yeah. Why am I taking geology? (laughs) (laughs) Full full disclosure, I'm not going to say where it went, but my first class I took in college was ping pong. Because I just okay. I just disco- I discovered that that could be a PE credit, and I'm not ripping. Well, actually, I kind of am. I discovered that ping pong was a PE credit, and so my I swear to God, my freshman year, the first class, like like classes were going to start <laughs> on a Wednesday, or if you had a Tuesday night class, and my Tuesday night class was ping pong. Anyway, sorry, rant over. Go ahead. Well, well, no one will accuse you of uh, of taking a light schedule with that public admission that you've just put out in the interwebs forever. Um, but no, like, so if you, if you think if, like to me, what if there was a credentialing system that would disrupt that intermediary of higher education as the sole arbiter, the sole guarantor of a credential that would allow someone to gain meaningful employment. We see, Google dropping their degree requirement. We like we we're seeing these things happen, right? So I think for me, it's like, what if there was a credential that could be afforded to people that was valuable, not because it was tied to a crypto or not because it was a university who's profit oriented on the back end of it, but what if there was a credential that was meaningful to employers, to the the person who earned it and the person who gave it? I feel like that could be really game changing. Yeah, and it, and like you said, it kind of creates a new, you know, it, and I always feel really hesitant to say these things, but you're right. I mean, the college system is the be-all, end-all in some ways, but not all colleges are created equal in some things, you know? I mean, like if you were getting a computer science degree, Carnegie Mellon would be a little different than getting it from, I'm not going to rip on any college, but some smaller community college in somewhere not Carnegie Mellon. So I liked it that there's almost like this ledger, this agreed upon system uh, that it could be validated. And, and yeah, can we, can we talk about how great Indiana is just for a second though? Because Indiana recognized that the barrier to to, to, to higher education was steep and they created the gateway to college model where you could take Ivy Tech community college classes and all the state public schools. So like, I feel like we're fortunate to come from a state that cares yeah. about, about the, the barrier to entry for, you know, post-secondary education. 
Yeah. But, if I can take a second and say, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people are shocked with how much innovation is coming out of the state and how they, I mean, quite frankly, there's been a lot of really cool hubs I've seen. I mean, I, I can say very similar things about Milwaukee, about Pittsburgh, about Columbus, Ohio. I mean, there's been these cities that are like, we're going to be relevant, damn it. Um, but the state as a whole of them embracing some new changes, you're right, is has been out there. Of course, it's been criticized by some. It goes against the traditional. But uh, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, let's pat ourselves on the back, Hoosiers. Let's take a second right now and <laughs> celebrate our many successes. Um, but yeah, I, like, so I think like for, for me, I look at the higher education model and I look at people in America that are, are getting a degree and then out of that degree, they're getting an entry-level job and $160,000 of debt to go with it. And I'm just going, there's got to be a better way. And so now we can kind of start talking about some of the things that we've been working on. We think not, well, I shouldn't say we think, and I, I even talked about this when I, I interviewed Brady. Um, first of all, we're, we're riding on the shoulders of giants because I, I'll, again, I, that, that uh, first meeting we had about where all could this could go. I was like, wait a second. I saw a, like a five minute short uh, at South by Southwest and, and um, Jane McGonigal had talked about, I think it was the Institute of the Future, where they start talking about a, a, a blockchain approach to micro-credentialing education. Um, so without a doubt, there's been things that have been posed that have been out there, um, but all of a sudden we decided to uh, try a grand experiment. Care to weigh in on that grand experiment for everybody? Yeah. So, you know, Don has a, you have a course. And we want to we want to attach a credential to a course using a blockchain ledger. So like we're we're saying like we we have this concept of uh, like we want to find a meaningful way to accredit something, right? So you have a course that's good, and why couldn't we put a meaningful credential on the opposite end of it and then make it accessible to learners, right? Simple, simple MVP. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things we talked about that uh, like it, it seemed like either the ideas of blockchain were so pie in the sky and, and really, really like in the future, we're going to do this. And you're like, okay, but that's, that, that's step three. We're step one and two. And so, yeah, like getting something out like there, we even talked about the fact that there's like this kind of really cool training things in certain sectors that we could put on there. Um, because it does, it needs, well, and it also needs validation. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you said that the course we have is good, but the nice thing that we've all agreed on, it has to be agreed on. If somebody says, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put up there a course on how to make money. Um, here's a joke within a joke, how to make money in the cryptocurrency market. Cause boy, there was a lot of experts 12 months ago. Um, but you know, it has to be agreed upon that this has got some sort of an industry backing or leadership to it. And so, yeah, we started to look for some simple courses that were at least endorsed by agreed upon experts, uh, or it had a track record. And, and I think that's been exciting because we just kind of put the word out to people that were into the blockchain community. Um, the enthusiasm is there. What is like, so I, I'll, I'll go, I'll defer back to you. 
where, what does this look like for education beyond like a small singleton course? What do you think the future could bring? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I was thinking about this the other day. I, I, I serve a school, a lovely community of learners, where when I did my senior survey my first year I was here, 94% of my seniors said they wanted to be doctors. Let me repeat that, 94%. So this is a very college-oriented clientele I'm serving out here, right? And then when I think about that, they all want to go to, they want to be doctors and some of them know why and some of them don't. But then when you drill down and then you think about their grades, their grades mean something to them because they want to go to college to be doctors. So they're very focused academically. But what about the kids that don't want to be doctors? And then I started to think about why, why do kids care about grades at all? And then I thought about what if there was a credential that a teacher could award a student for their work, it could potentially give the learner an intrinsic desire to achieve and give them a a credentialed skill that they leave with rather than a C. What the heck does that mean, Don? You're a C. I mean, like we could, standards-based grading is a better, more, I think more suitable approach to, to evaluating student performance. But then like, I just think the grades are so frivolous that I see that this could be a really substantial way of changing the conversation to go from I'm an A student to I have this micro credential in you know 2D digital design. Yeah, and that agreed upon thing like you said is so important because <laughs> one one C in one person's class might be something totally different. And so getting that um, more agreed upon ledger is, is, I think, is really exciting. But then also having this open source of, you know, I, I, I a lot of times think about like Wikipedia, that it's an open source, it's evolving. It's not, the correct answer won't be A. The correct answer might be a little bit more of an evolved A later on as more agreed upon transactions or opinions come in. And I think that's one of the things that really excites me. Yeah. And I, I think that like, if you have this open source community of learners and you have this content, you find that you're curating this content from different people that are experts in different things. Uh, I think if people haven't paused and you don't include in the show notes, the Institute to the future video that you were describing earlier, like the part of that, that what excited you and I about it so much, what like, I was almost doing cartwheels uh, over here when we were watching it was like, it really illustrates that in a model like this, an open source learning model, anyone can be the teacher and anyone can be the learner. And that anyone could be a nine-year-old who's really great at something, or it could be someone in, in a country where they don't have great access to quality education. So I feel like that global network of learners and teachers and anyone could be the teacher and anyone could be the learner is so powerful. No, I agree. Like I, that's when my mind was spinning too. When we had that first call is that one, I have some former students that, well, heck, there's a reason why Brady's going to go on next. And I've had on Andrew and Ava and some of these other kids in my class and we'll have more this year is because when you hear from them, you're like, wait, you're good. Well, of course. So their 17 year old 
label might hurt them, but it wouldn't on this kind of system. And, and, and that like, <laughs> I love it because they can be at a Zen like level. Um, and then quite frankly, I, you know, again, acknowledging that we're riding on the shoulders of giants again, I'm almost positive. It's like Institute for the future. You can look it up on YouTube, uh, maybe like future of education. I'll actually in a very Joe Rogan esque way, I will look it up as we speak. Um, but you know, all these ideas and all these, anybody, and I, I know this is worse. People are like, oh, well, that's, a, that's, that's weird. But like the anybody can be the teacher model um, is correct in the sense that you can have a great grasp of a concept. And why wouldn't you want to pass it on? Why wouldn't you, if you're onto something great, kind of share your knowledge? And, and, and the thing I loved about that video and really what we're talking about as well is we say sometimes in the education circles, lifelong learner. But this incentivizes lifelong learning. This incentivizes well, if, if companies were open up to the fact of like, you know, hey, I saw that you got a piece of paper from a accredited university, you must be learning. That's cool. But I also like it if like, hey, I've got some micro credentials because you and I both know there's updates to coding languages. There's new coding languages. There's emerging things. There's like how to understand the analytics of, you know, AdWords and Facebook and all these other things. There's all sorts of, opportunities for micro-credentialing when it gets the acceptance of corporations and you can start getting bumps and pay because of it, man, that's when it gets exciting. Well, exactly, exactly. And then like, so we're talking about K-12, but then what about people that are already in career? I heard a really, really fantastic talk at a conference I was at in Dubai uh, from Lord Jim Knight. And he was talking about moving university to a lifelong learning subscription model because you need to get these, you need to be upskilled, right? Continuously in your career. So yeah, I think exactly. But I do have to say, since we brought up Brady for a second, I had always been impressed with your work. I had been an admirer from afar, literally from afar. Um, But after interacting with him in the manner that I have over however long we've been collaborating, people see the things that you know you post or that your kids post but it is so apparent in interacting with this young man how incredible the work you're doing in your school is because he is a powerhouse man and i I gotta say just thoroughly impressed in in I don't feel like I am interacting with a senior in high school when I am collaborating with him. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, this is Brady's going to both smile and go, "Hey, wait a second. Uh, Brady is absolutely everything that you said." But this is what happens. This is this is the counter argument. But there's nothing overly special about what we're doing. We're providing some freedom. We're providing now. His motivation is a little different. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you and not admit that he's one of our better. He is, um, but this is this is happening more often than not. Now, the first couple of years of this class, that's a different story. It was hard, but now that that culture is here and it's theirs, for if you want to take it, I've got some students that go, okay, I'm going to lean forward. I'm going to take it, and they feel empowered. The funny thing is, and I'll probably have another podcast on this, when you open up Pandora's box, because uh, every now and then I talk to Molly Kane, Molly's a friend, every now and then she's like, okay, just don't let them get too big for their brushes, because then they get so confident, then they're like, yeah, I'm the expert. Um, but I'd rather them be far too confident than um, not thinking they don't have a seat at the table. 
Oh, one thing I wanted to mention too, before we drift away from the anyone could be a learner conversation. It's <laughs> my fault. Is, is, that, is that if, no, that was mine. I brought up Brady because he's tremendous. But if, if you flew, if you got on a plane right now, Don, and flew out of IND to Dubai International Airport, I picked you up, I drove you the hour here, and you went into my son's room, who is four years old, he could teach you how to build a mod in Minecraft. Yep. It, 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 it Great point. At, at a master level. And he's four years old. So yep. I, when you when you connect learning to something that people are inherently interested in and have a purpose for, it does the age, the experience level. You can really take all of that and throw it out the window because I mean, like, so I think that's what what we're trying to propose. That's the type of model that we're trying to create to see if there's any viability. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I and one of the reasons why I'm doing stuff with Twitch uh, because some of the you know, my gosh, I had to learn the ins and outs of Twitch and I didn't learn from a credentialed person. I learned from a bunch of 15 year olds who uh, were like, well, here's what you're doing wrong and all this other stuff. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, just seeing this explosion of, of things on Twitch or yeah. It, it's now that Fortnite is so ubiquitous, you're right. The people that are going to be teaching more Fortnite techniques are probably somebody under 20. So I think it's exciting. Oh, by the way, I looked it up. The, the title of the video is Learning is Earning 2026. So it was their view of education 20 years from now. So yeah, it came out two years ago. Yeah, make sure if you can put that in the, sh- in the episode notes, Show notes or like yep. tweet it yep. out a couple times, that'd be yep. awesome. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Well, uh, Jeremy, I, I, a, I appreciate you uh, being on. I, I could have swore I had you on like four months ago. But anyway, the time was right. And my gosh, look at what we've done in the last two or three weeks. Um, I will then speak for you on this part and say, if, there's, if you have any interest in looking into where blockchain and education is going, um, I highly recommend that you reach out to Jeremy or myself. Uh, or, or for that matter, Brady, um, because this is kind of a fun project. We're going to see what kind of open source uh, materials we can bring in education and tie them to blockchain. But other than that, where should people find you, how do they get a hold of you, Jeremy? Yeah, the, the big thing that I'm trying to do for other schools right now is even if you are here in the UAE or you're in another country, I will do a blockchain for dummies and why you should care presentation uh, because my, my thesis is that because there's so much talk about all these other technologies, like we need to code, we need virtual reality and augmented reality, there's no space to talk about the fact that these other tidal, wave of, tidal waves of technologies are coming and there's no space to discuss them in schools. But anyways, you can find me at, at jwilliamsedu on Twitter and then at LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, I'm like uh, linkedin.com slash teach lead serve if you want to find me there. Happy to connect. Yeah. I can speak proudly of uh, your level of interest and, and your agreeableness and your willingness to do stuff. I, I you know, honored the, by the fact that you drove down, for the record, no, not when he was in Dubai. You can't drive from Dubai. But when you drove down to Indy and then met up with us, and, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a lot of fun ever since. And I, I'm really looking forward to uh, continuing this blockchain mission with you. And uh, gosh, even also just the, 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 the help that you've given some of my students and, and um, you know, all these things that you're working on. Uh, I cannot speak enough about how helpful you are. So yes, I agree. Uh, if you're listening to this, if your school wants some sort of an explanation or wants to look into what this all means, 
Jeremy does a really great job of explaining it in a way that uh, I was not able to until until we talk. Well, anyway, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a, a really helpful, and I hope uh, people reach out to you. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. All right.